Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee and I'll be chatting to researchers, teachers and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuance involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundagara people in the Lower Blue Mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was, and always will be, the land of the First Nations people. I decided to start up this podcast, because rather selfishly, there are a lot of areas I would like to have more knowledge in, and people that I would really like to hear from. So I thought, why not start up a podcast, so that I can share these conversations with other educators. I'm also really interested in finding out what those active ingredients are in actually getting evidence-informed practice happening in our classrooms. Very early on when I was thinking about starting up a podcast, I knew that today's guest, Dr. Russ Fox, a former teacher and a current lecturer in applied behaviour analysis at Monash University, was someone that I wanted to get on. I have had many deep and meaningful conversations with him previously about all things to do with education and he is truly across what effective teaching can be and how we can support teachers in implementing it. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. So Russ, thank you for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Now for those that don't know you, can you please tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up in the position that you're in today? Yeah. Um, well, first, uh, just thanks so much for for inviting me to have a, this conversation. I, I, um, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversations in the past, and so looking forward to this one. So thank you. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm Russ. I'm a a primary school teacher by training. Um, so I've ended up um, working at a university, um, not quite by accident, but sort of followed my nose that way through my experiences in school, and I um just felt really strongly about uh, building relationships with with students, getting to connect with learners um, and trying to make them feel really like welcome in a classroom and, and trying to make that sort of really fun classroom environment um, that I experienced uh, a couple of times through my journey. I had a couple of teachers uh, that were really impactful on my life, um, made a really big difference. And you sort of hold that pretty tightly like that was something that was really important to me and then to think that there was a chance that I could have that kind of influence on other learners in in their journey uh was pretty yeah I was excited by that opportunity and I just really enjoyed uh teaching and working with groups of students uh I I taught uh in a mainstream school teaching year six um did did a few years of that and uh the, the the more I was engaged in teaching year six in mainstream schools, the, the, the more I so ended up with the students that were maybe <laughs> a little more disengaged, a little more boisterous, uh, m- maybe had a few learning or behavioural challenges. And I really enjoyed working with those learners. Um, and looking back on it, I think there was a lot of stuff that I'd sort of accidentally done really well. And there was a lot of stuff that um, I, I probably spent time on that I didn't need to. And there's sort of maybe the weight of the relationship at different stages uh, overcame some of my ineffective practices, but I just really enjoyed working with learners that needed a bit more support. And so I actually um, left 
my school. I was in an ongoing position. I, I resigned my position and went to start a school with a friend of mine um, who ran a charity. And so this was for a group of uh, young people who had been out of school for a really long time. So I think the the, the longest uh, period that one of the young ladies was out of school, and these are teenagers, um, was about three and a half years. So they'd finished year six and just never went to high school. And they were due to be working in in at around that sort of year 10 age group. And so they're just not really gone. Um, and there was a whole raft of reasons why these particular um, young ladies were out of school. Like they'd been um, sort of dealing with um, challenges relating to substances or they were living in um, out of home care due to really complex relationships with family um, and sort of, you know, trauma and, and, and really, really difficult home lives. And so we um, worked to register a school and um, try and create an environment that we thought was going to be most engaging and safe for these particular teenagers. And that was uh, really interesting and really challenging. I feel like every year working there was like a dog year of experience just in terms of um, what, what it meant to engage and um, how to try and work with people that have been out of school for a really like we we think of some of the routines and habits of school as we're talking about them you know way back in the rear vision mirror long lost habits um and so what it what you know learning about what it meant to um get students like that into a place where they could could learn and i think um i i have a lot of strong stronger opinions, not just about evidence-based instruction um, from the evidence, but also from that time. <laughs> so, and then I, um, we lost money. We ran out of funding. So we um, just had to shut it down, which was uh, really, really sad. I was, uh, I grieved it um, for quite a while, but, you know, we, we managed to get um, one of the young ladies through VCE and then uh, in, they, they all found other meaningful pathways into either um, certificate courses or completions of um, of some kind of um, credential, which uh, I think is a testament to them, really, that um, they were as driven when it fell over. And I went back to working in um, the Department of Education and Training here in Victoria. I'm in, in, in Melbourne. I live on Wurundjeri land. And um, I just uh, started working in withdrawal behaviour settings for primary age kids again, but um, small classes, Students that have been um, sent from their school of um, of enrolment due to complex and challenging behaviour, and so you know these were students that we would work with um, several terms at a time, try and um, focus on some specific behaviours, uh, work with their teachers on other days, and try and uh, re-engage them in learning and um, build some skills, and then. Um, did that for a, a little while again. And then from that same organisation, we actually decided that the model could be flipped. And so rather than bring students into us and try and, you know, fix a student, we became a capacity building model and we went out into schools and worked as instructional coaches um, for the teachers with the students who were um, facing some complex challenges. And uh, like through our conversation, I imagine this is going to come up, but this is not about changing a learner as such. If we understand that um, complex behaviour is uh, a result of interactions between the learner and their, you know, family history and and who like who they are as a learner and the environment that they're in, then to some degree we're going to need to address the school environment that they're in. Otherwise, it's going to be difficult for them to um, make meaningful change in a long term way. Uh, we could do things at the 
uh, re-engagement centre I worked at, and we did. And then when, we, when they were sent back to school, if nothing changed, then, then things went back to as before. Um, and so the whole time that sort of instructional coaching phase was going on, uh, I was just doing more study, you know, just trying, just trying to work out how to do it better. Um, I feel like sometimes it's really... Um, it can be really hard to find like good guides and good resources. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll do some further study and, and find that out. And um, the uh, questions kept coming and, you know, finished one thing and finished another. And then it was time to, um, I've, I've, I decided it was time to um, start to answer some of my own questions. And that's when I did, did the, uh, my doctoral work. And it's just my, it was focused on um, implementing and sustaining um, positive behavior interventions in schools and what makes for sustained implementation. And now I am a university nerd and I teach into um, a master's of behavior analysis at Monash University. And I, I'm really thrilled. I get to keep asking questions and going into schools and working with teachers and a lot of our research is um, shaped by teacher practice. You know, how can we actually help um, teachers in their role, you know, and and informed by what they're trying to do and the constraints of what, it, you know, what it actually requires to be a teacher now with time and, you know, all the competing demands and priorities. Um, how can we actually get um, evidence-based practices up and running, particularly around behaviour support, um, so that both students and teachers can find success in their classroom? Yeah. Awesome. You know, what, what a great journey you've had, Russ. And um, but I do want to just dig into a couple of things that you said there. So firstly, you yeah. know, like I said, really early on that you seem to be kind of drawn to those disengaged students. What do you think it was about them that drew you to them? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, and some of the, I always wonder like how much of this is me telling a story now, looking back on it and, and how, like the, how much does this actually relate to why I was doing it? For me, I thought it was like a, a challenge. It was interesting. Um, it was sort of um, the least straightforward part of my job, I think. Um, and that doesn't mean to say I couldn't have done a whole bunch of stuff um, way more effectively now. Like with, uh, I was having a conversation um, with uh, Dr. Nathaniel Swain the other day, and I'm like, there are so many things that I was kind of looking back on. I was like, oh man, I, I, would, have, I would have loved to have known that in my first year teaching. Um, although I probably still would have just been like gasping for air. <laughs> um, but I think it's the challenge. Um, I also think you can see like uh, a big change relatively um, quickly, you know, like if, if you can actually make some of those connections. And like I said, some of that stuff was approximated. Like I, I kind of stumbled on some things that worked. And if you had have asked me to repeat it, I probably couldn't have done it. Or if I had have tried to generalize that skill with some other learners with some different challenges, I, I might not have been able to do it again. Um, but you sort of see a really big change. And when you see really big positives like that, it can be pretty reinforcing, I think. Um, but I also find like these are often kids that um, or, or students that had like a bit of cheek, like they had a twinkle in their eye. And now sometimes that was like that made my day really hard. But also there were moments where it was just like really funny or really interesting or they were like just, you know, that, yeah, they were just really, really uh they, were, they, were, they often brought a little bit more um, spark and colour. Um, and again, like I said before, maybe that at times that was uh, not great spark and colour. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I did. I, I think I enjoyed the challenge of it at the time. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't necessarily have the smoothest path through in school either. Like I, I was a bit of a disengaged student myself at times. And so, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a bit of that wrapped up in there too. But I don't want to, you know, lie on the 
on the the psychologist couch too much about about that. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and then tell us about you know a challenge that you've you've faced that upon reflection it was just a really good learning experience. Oh yeah. Um, so I think the particularly working with the uh, the teenagers there are a number of challenges relating to like, what does building relationship look like? That would, it was just a really good learning experience. Um, Cause I think in, in education, we get told so often like build like, re- relationships to your number one asset, like build relationships. You just need, you just need really great teacher student relationships. And, and that's right, but it's sort of not as helpful as maybe it, 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 it sounds on first, like, you know, delivery of advice because how, like, what does it actually mean to build relationships? Does this, and then in the same breath, we're told that, you know, don't smile till Easter or you're not meant to be their friend. And it's like, I think a lot of particularly particularly beginning teachers um, have to juggle the tension in advice that sounds contradictory and trying to work through um, some of those things, particularly with the teenagers. And, and it was an interesting thing because a lot of teenagers, um, when teachers are working with teenagers, typically they're in a high school setting and it's like classes and, you know, periods of 50 minutes or 60 minutes or 70 minutes or whatever the school um, timetable set up as. Yeah. Um, whereas these teenagers, was it was like a, t- a group of year nine and 10 and 11 students, but we were like a primary school classroom. Like we were always together. And I was like, well, <laughs> like <laughs> navigating what it meant to be like with this group of learners, like for a, an extended period of time was really, really interesting. And the lesson out of it for me was that, yeah, you, it's not about being their friend, but it is also about finding those moments to connect, uh, like to share and connect with, you know, honesty and vulnerability as you would with a friend. But it's also then um, the, the idea that, you have to have structure in how you respond to certain things in order to navigate the, well, hang on a second, is this the moment that's lighter or is this the moment that I actually need to hold some boundaries here? And so having a really clear idea, like really clear idea of um, what the expectations and values are that we are holding for all. And then, you know, how we're going to focus on those uh, at any one moment. And I mean, I must admit for me, it was just like, there were times that I just go, um, and sit in the car at the end of a day and like ponder how I could have approached something differently to balance that relationship and expectation holding. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, I mean, I'm just in like massive vocal agreement with uh, Tom Bennett um, and for people that uh, are listening and haven't read Running the Room, I recommend you, re- you do so um, uh, about writing scripts for yourself. Like there are some situations where, you know, if you go in with, an idea of how you would approach something you're ahead of the game when you have to think of something on the spot you might do a really good job like I you know there are times I responded off the cuff and it was awesome and there are other times I responded off the cuff and I just made the day way worse like way worse and so to have kind of like that framework of that idea of how I'm going to approach stuff I think was really really important in balancing the tension between relationships and holding expectations and ultimately I sort of learned that it was through holding expectations that we're able to build consistent relationships. I also think um, for me that the other lesson I learned, particularly with the teenagers, was um, like a safe sense of humour, like a no threat humour was really important, Um, that they really appreciated um, a space where there was like 
you know, laughter or groans at really bad dad style jokes. Um, but for these, for these learners, it, there was like nothing harmful about bad dad jokes, you know, like, and, and it's kind of the, um, caution against sarcasm, like really question, you know, it, even if it seems like they're enjoying it, like, are they saving face or are they really enjoying it? You know? So it's like, how do we build in things that are like fun and light and interesting and show our like personality and style, but in a way that's like pretty safe. Um, and, you know, my wife still gets um, messages occasionally on Facebook from uh, some of these learners and they're still like, Oh, is Russ still telling terrible jokes? <laughs> yeah. And, and so like that kind of stuff is kind of, this lasted, you know, I mean, that's, you know, we're talking um, a while ago now. And so um yeah, I think that that sort of stuff really stuck um, with the with the cohort. And for me, it's like, yeah, um, show your personality and, and and all that kind of stuff, but in a way that is structured and planned and really safe. So, yeah, I like what you said about you know um, planning for it and and whether that involves writing a script or practicing it. It was uh, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and and it's just interesting how if you if you look at what teaching actually is, we're performing. You know, every single yeah. day in front yeah. of an audience um, who uh, are unpredictable, yeah. extremely yeah. unpredictable. Uh, like yeah. I said, we don't know what's going to be sensitive for them, what they're going to find funny, what they're yeah. going to understand, you know, all of these yeah. things. Um, if we don't actually think about it beforehand and prepare for it, we can really either put ourselves in danger or um, we can kind of push the wrong buttons. And so, you know, I'm a firm believer in, yeah, doing as much preparation as possible, whether that's, you know, writing down a script, rehearsing it, even, you know, yeah. myself today, you know, we're both professionals and mm. I've still written down my script of what things I'm going to say uh, because I know how difficult it is to try to think on the spot and yeah. effective with what you're doing. So, you know, yeah. I agree with you in what you're saying there. Yeah, brilliant. And I think, like, building on what you're saying, um, uh, and I really love the way you've added in this idea of like practicing, like sometimes this, this can feel really corny or just feel really awkward or, 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 or like a bit um, uncoordinated. Like I feel a bit unco when I do stuff like this, but it does um, put you in a good space um, or a better space. And, and I think there are times of doing this kind of stuff. And, and this is a little bit um, connected to our implementation uh, and some of our behavioral intervention type uh, work uh, practicing in context can be really beneficial too. So it's not just in front of the mirror. It's not just in the car. It's like in your room, like when you look around the room, what are the cues in your room? Where do the, where do the learners sit that you frequently have to um, have a conversation with? You know, like as you're going about the pack up at the end of the day, that's a good time to like, uh, how could I, and it's not, it's not to like, cause I, I don't know if you found this too, Brennan, but like, I think it's really easy to, um, to then get in the time machine and like travel back to the moment and just sort of beat yourself up about what you should have said. Um, so there's a sweet spot between reflection and reflection that becomes like self-punishment. <laughs> we we want to be in that space where we can reflect on what happened in a really productive way. Like, okay, when faced with this kind of situation in future, what are the things I would like to say? Not what should I have said? Cause I feel like that's kind of like you start to label yourself or you carry it you know, as, as, as baggage in the time machine. Um, but like, what, what could I, when I, when I'm faced with this situation again, what would I like to say? Like, what are some things I could say or should say? Um, and then to practice those in the context um, or kind of go through that rehearsal in the moment. Um, 
Yeah. And we, we see people rehearse all the time. Like, I mean, how many, um, you know, golfers are standing there doing practice swings, you know, they cricketers practicing shots, you know, netball shooters practicing basketballers, practicing the, the motion of the shot, like the, the, the wrist action. Like, it, I mean, they're all sports analogies, but we see it across all sorts of different domains. It's like, well, like you say, it's a public gig. <laughs> like we may as well practice it because it's real. I get, I get that hot feeling when it doesn't go well. Like I, I get sweaty. Like I go red. Like I have like a physiological reaction to it. So yeah, in the public situation, I, I can practice. <laughs> yeah. All right. Look for this first part. Uh, this next part of the uh, the chat. I just want to go through a few scenarios with you. So the first one I want to talk about is, uh, you know, in Australia here where about to start uh, the new school year. I think some schools may, may have already gone back, but yeah. uh, I just want to go over like, you know, all teachers are told and, and you kind of um, spoke about this before, but all teachers are told to spend the first few weeks or lessons focused on routines and relationships. What are your thoughts on this and, and what should teachers actually be doing so that whatever they go over uh, is sustainable? Yeah, uh, th this is such a good question. Um, so just a pat, a pat on the back for you, Brennan. Great question. Um, I think the yeah, like I said, it, it can feel like it's one thing or another thing. You know, it's like well, I, don't, I can I can um, build routines. I can I can try and build relationships. I can try and build routines while I build relationships. Um, and we can sort of you know wonder about like what's the order I do things here? Like which is most important? How do I prioritize? And I mean, I, I think the basic answer is yeah, we we should spend time absolutely building routines and we have to do the work of building good relationships. And one of the things I've, I've um, been trying to talk with teachers about um, a lot lately is that building good routines and creating a safe and structured learning environment and using evidence-based behavior support practices is how we go about the work of building good relationships. So it's, it's not, um, do I have to build relationships before I can use evidence-based practices. It's no, I build relationships by using evidence-based practices. And the other thing I'd like to layer in to this um, response as well is that we, we also teach like getting learners engaged, not just like, like we don't do maths so that we can teach the routine of maths. We teach the routine of, of the math lesson. And this is, you know, high school it's 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 primary it doesn't matter which part of the school those routines obviously have to match the context and the maturity and the, the experience of the learners it's building on what they already know but we actually have to teach them something that's like interesting and meaningful at the same time so it's, we're not avoiding teaching um things but we do really want to hammer home the routines and we do things like error correct behaviorally or socially when things are not going the way we want and this is back to that tension of like how do we build relationships whilst you know not smiling till easter <laughs> and, and the idea is if and like to make it really concrete if we say that an evidence-based practice is how we build a relationship well then we teach the expectations of our classroom we model it we we give people opportunity to rehearse that in meaningful ways through like, whether it's like learning activities with a partner or whether it's, you know, group activities or whether it's individual type activities. And then we reinforce it when we see it. And there might be situations where we're teaching the expectations and we're seeing something that's sitting outside those expectations. Well, then we engage in error correction to make sure that we move back towards the expectations. We don't let it go. 
because we want to build relationships. But how we error correct is what shapes the relationship. So if we're getting really reactive and we're starting to get, you know, the voice starts to get, get raised or things like that, that's where we might um, find it difficult to hold expectations and build relationships. But if we are moving into an evidence-based error correction and we talk about a three-step error correction where we identify the expected thing, the positive alternative, then we give the learner an opportunity to engage in practice, so to do it again, basically, and then we provide reinforcement or feedback for the learner once they've done that. Um, and we can do that in a way that's kind of, that's really quite, you know, calm and, and, and measured. And this is where our rehearsal stuff comes in. It's like, well, what are the things I can expect with my cohorts in week one, two, and three that might relate to my expectations, that might relate to my routines? And then how can I actually phrase um, a request to show the positive alternative to that learner? You know, if we're going through a three-step error correction, there are times I'm like, oh, okay. Um, like it, the hallway is a really easy example. So if people are, are, are running in the hallway, we can say, oh, okay, hi. Oh, that's a bit fast. Um, how do we move in the hallway? So we're actually wanting them to name the expected alternative and say, oh, we walk. It's like, great. Thanks for telling me. Can you walk back there and show me what that looks like? Fantastic. And then when they do it, like, love it. Hey, appreciate it. Next time, I'm going to be looking out for you doing that. Well done. And we move on. And, and so there might be some um, like really easy examples like the hallway. And then there are some that are more complex, like less concrete. Like if we're talking about um, group work and someone's not participating in the group, well, then what does that look like? How am I going to phrase a positive alternative that I'm going to get them to then practice? <laughs> so I, quite often teachers are really good at identifying what needs to be done differently. And we can be positively worded about that or we can be really strongly worded about that or you know it might be frustrating and our voices might be elevated and that's certainly been me at times I'm not saying that's not been me but the calmer we are about delivering that obviously the, the easier it is to build and maintain relationships yeah but then the challenge for teachers I think because we're kind of moving from one thing to another we've got so many things happening at once you know we sort of every moment there's multiple decisions coming from all different um, areas of the room. It's like, it's cognitive overload at times. It's what do I do as the positive alternative? The easiest thing for me to do is say, ah, stop that. Don't do that anymore. But like, what do I want them to do instead? And how can I get them moving on that path so I can deliver reinforcement or a positive feedback for them engaging in it? And I think if we can use that style of error correction and we're, and we're allowing for opportunities to respond, which essentially is an opportunity to engage, an opportunity to respond and demonstrate success, then it allows us to be really positive and follow up with good stuff. So it's not stuck with just a, hey, don't do the wrong thing. <laughs> it's a, hey, how do we do that? And then show me what that looks like. And then thank you for doing that. When you do it, I see it. And that counts. Now, over the year, we're not going to need to do so much of that overt reinforcement we would hope we would hope that they're doing things because it's paying off for them in their interactions with their peers it's paying off for them in their learning it's paying off for them in how they're able to engage in the classroom but initially we might need to do more of that and the other part of it too is if students are doing the routines we do want to see and like they pick it up really well then we can tell them that like and and all the bits of it that we like um and the, the way I've been thinking about some of this um, routine-based stuff specifically is like a gradual release of um, responsibility kind of model here with the routine. 
So when we're starting, it's it's most concrete when we're talking about preps, but the, it, it works across all levels. When we're starting, we're teaching them like, hey, when the bell goes, the bell means this. <laughs> like when the bell goes, we line up here <laughs> and we're going to line up here in this particular order, um, at least for this week or however we're doing that. But it's like, and we're going through each step of that routine. We're going through each step of the routine from the lineup to the to the floor time. You know, if it's bags in, what does bag look? And we go, we're breaking every one of those routines and transitions. You know, the the moving from the mat to the table, moving from the table to the um, the the wash hands area, or whatever it might be, getting our um, our little little lunch and coming back and sitting down. And again, like I said before, this is the same for high school students. It's just not little lunch and we don't talk to them like they're perhaps you know it's there are still components of our transitions like what, what does ha homework hand in look like you know what what, what does um, worksheet handout look like or what does instructional time look like does everyone get the routine of when I'm doing instruction you, we sit like this the materials are kind of like this and it's not to be controlling or focused on compliance this is about ensuring success and I think um, compliance of out of all of these things is kind of a it's a byproduct. It shouldn't be our aim in the first place. It should be a byproduct of doing all this stuff really well. So as we're teaching all these routines, we're really explicit in the first instance. And it might be that like, oh, okay, do you hear that? That's the bell. Or okay, so now I'm asking you to move from the mat to the chairs. And we might do checks for understanding about what the next step of the routine is. But over time, we want to release that responsibility to the learners. And we don't even want to have to prompt anymore. So initially, we might be doing a lot of pre-correcting and prompting, lots of really clear markers and transition indicators, lots of environmental cues. And I, James Clear in his book about Atomic Habits talks about the power of the environment a lot. And he's talking in really easy to understand terms about a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, our behavior science stuff is like nerdily getting into deep experiments on. And it's, and I think um, teachers would do well in trying to make really, really clear those environmental cues for things, prompting to the environmental cues to kind of show, <laughs> ah, hear that? Now is when we're shifting from this to this. So setting routines up and teaching explicitly the environmental cues that we want learners to be able to attend to on their own over time and then fading away the prompting over the first sort of couple of weeks and letting the environment sort of seeing how that goes we might need to increase the prompting um we might need to be more explicit we might need to do a little reteach here and there but ideally over time we fade away our prompting and our learners are independent following the cues of the environment um, and so within that too, if we're error correcting and providing lots of really positive feedback for what we see them doing well, I kind of have this um, working assumption where it's like, if students do the expected stuff in class, does it make their world better? Uh, and people will talk about reinforcement or rewards and things like that. Um, and we might talk about it later on. I don't know, but there's just this question around like if they do the if they do the, let's quote unquote the right thing, does their world change? Like, does, do they notice a difference, like for themselves or externally or anything? Because if they don't, then the sustained use of those pro-social skills is is maybe questionable until something comes up that's either more appealing or until they start to really enjoy that more. And so for me, I just don't want to leave that to chance. I want to make sure that if they're doing the right thing, it makes their world better. And for some learners, I might be explicitly 
it connecting it to how they're feeling <laughs> how are you feeling you, you, you look really calm is that how you feel great fantastic it looks like that transition has really worked for you you ready to go all right off you go and so like you know really explicitly making those connections to some of the internal stuff so they can start to see how it's paying off for them or it might be that i'm using some external extrinsic stuff in the first place like ah mate that's the third time i've seen you do that i love it and it might be you know, praise feedback. It might be something as part of our school-wide token system or whatever it might be. But it's just, yeah, but let's not let's not leave it to chance. Like if we leave it to chance in February, then we might be really paying the price come November, right? Like it's like yeah, let let's go hard. Um so that's a, I think that's a pretty long and comprehensive answer. I, I if I'm just to like recap, I think yes, relationships, yes, routines, how we do the routines builds relationships. And I think if we can do that all in the service of connecting it to academic learning and to success, connecting it to them progressing um, in a way that they notice, that they understand, um, then we're likely to kind of tick those boxes as best we can. It's they're at that their best bets. They're high probability things to do. Not going to work all the time for everyone, but it's definitely the best way to set ourselves up. Yeah. Yeah. So much gold there, Russ. Um, you know, one of the things I always think about when we look at routines and, uh, you know, developing those expectations is just how a lot of the times what we have in our heads as teachers is still really abstract for our students. And, you know, so yeah. they might yeah. line up outside and yeah. you say that to a bunch of kindergarten students or foundation or whatever you call them, where you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you just said to them, line up outside, you're going to have some kids, you know, hanging off the railings. You're going to have some kids in, in two lines, another kid hitting another kid. Uh, people, yeah. talk, you know, it's all sorts of things going on. And so, uh, yeah. you know, I like how you're, uh, you've linked up a lot of those behaviours that, that we um, promote for good teaching practice, you know, that yeah. teaching, yeah. that gradual release of responsibility. These are terms that we talk about when we're yeah. talking about effective evidence-informed uh, teaching practice. And so mm. you're, you're saying how academic behaviour is, is behaviour. And, uh, you know, when we're saying, you know, behaviour, when we usually talk about behaviour, we're talking about, you know, how the kids, uh, you know, are behaving whether positively or negatively. Um, but, yeah, it, it's all the same, isn't it? You know, and yeah, yeah. reinforcement. And, you know, I like the, the, um, the, the three steps for the error correction that you, you brought up. So the identify the positive alternative and then that practice with the reinforcement I think yeah but for, for, you know uh, for teachers to understand and uh, and even just asking yourself that question of does it make their world better um, yeah you know, that's a, a good way to kind of frame it and to kind of get into where they are you know what what sort of things they might be thinking about yeah and we, we can't we can't always know like you know and and if we've got 30 learners and we're cranking into a year nine science lesson. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go all, all 30 students before I begin, I want to know whether that lineup routine has made a difference for your world personally in your, in your, you know, internal constellation of yourself. Like <laughs> I, we don't have time. And so I don't, I don't want teachers to get the idea that it's like, you know, we're going to, we're going to stand at the front of the room and gaze into all their eyes and, you know, know their souls. Like, no, no, but it is a sense of like, um, Broadly speaking, does it does it appear like this is paying off for for our cohort? Is it working? And if it's working, do they know? And and if they don't, if I can't tell if they know or not, then I'm going to tell them. Okay, <laughs> I'm just not going to make. I'm just not going to leave it to chance. Um, 
to work out whether or not they've understood that what they're doing is working for our instructional environment, behavioral environment. I, I mean, I, just, I, I appreciate your reflection so much. Um, and I think that idea of, like, I, I really want to encourage teachers because I, some of my own research, uh, I, I don't like this self-referential stuff. I think it's, uh, there's a, you know, uh, it can get uh, can get a bit uh, like awkward, <laughs> but I do think like we we did a study and it, and it looked at how teachers felt prepared about engaging in evidence based behaviour support, um, and, and the answers were just like really really clear. It's really striking. They're just not prepared. They're just not prepared at all. You know, they they just done minimal was the was the best we got in pre service um, preparation around behaviour support. Um, None was the most common. And that, I mean, to me, that's like, it's such a core component of what we're doing um, in classrooms all the time. And I think the good news, like you said, is that it links back to evidence-based instructional practices. It really does. Like the, the, the actual shape of the practices are the same, the targets are different. Yeah. And I think one of the things for teachers is that we often feel like behavior is a whole different realm. It's a whole different thing that requires a whole different skill set, a whole different toolkit. But if you're engaging in evidence-based instructional practices, firstly, your you're, you're odds on to improve the behavior in your classroom just by meeting the learner's academic needs. <laughs> like, and uh, Rob Horner, um, who's a really prominent um, school uh, positive behavior support, um, PBIS researcher, says that um, uh, effective academic instruction is your best behavior support tool. Like it just is. Like meeting kids, meeting, meeting students' um, learning needs is the best thing you can do for their behavior. Um, but also... It, it's the same kind of practice. And I, I like, I really want to get back to this idea of teachers have a toolkit of instructional practices. Some of those are behavioral instruction. Some of those are academic instruction. And the hard part then becomes knowing when to switch from which one to which one, like, hang on a second, actually this, I could engage in like error correction around the way you're talking with your friend in class and our expectations, but actually maybe this is a learning thing. <laughs> so for me, um, getting teachers to ask the question, what's that about when they see problem behavior um, will help them pick whether they actually go down the path of academic or social instruction. But yeah, you're right. It's the same stuff. It's are we giving them opportunities to respond? Are we being really explicit about what our values mean? Like you said, some of our values can be really like in the cloud a little bit, like, you know, compassion as <laughs> a school value. Like it's great. It's a great value. But like, what does that look like for a group of, you know, nine-year-olds? How do they show compassion? Like, and and so we we just teach it. We teach it, and we're really concrete. We're really clear. We give good examples. We give non-examples. We we model it. We rehearse it. We give feedback on it. We we do good teaching. Yeah, yeah. Um, next scenario I want to throw at you is, and and this is one I I see happen for most teachers at, at different stages of their career. But how do you differentiate? your behavior expectations for students when the students expect the same standards. You know, so for example, we might have a student who has experienced trauma or is on the autism spectrum. And so us as teachers, you know, we know that our expectations are different for them, but the students, they don't necessarily feel the same way as us. What, you know, what, what sort of advice do you have for teachers there? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. It really is. Um, and I think the way we talk about our expectations um, in, the, in the first place is, is important. Um, and there are ways that we can talk about our expectations that kind of, um, like, and, and I want to be really clear that I, I am a believer in, like, 
high expectations. Like I, I, I think that we can hold higher expectations than than we do, and and more often than not, if if we see you know research evidence on students with a range of different um, you know backgrounds, trauma histories, whether they're autistic students, whether it's you know a, a range of different things, there are often um, there can be a tyranny of low expectations where we don't expect enough of our learners. Um, but how we talk about those expectations can be uh, really, really impactful. And I think um, one way, like, and again, I'm just going to draw the parallel, I guess, with academic learning. Um, so we're really clear about like what it means to have a safe and supportive learning environment, like uh, the expectations we, we hold for our classroom at, at some of those like non-negotiable, clear kind of things. But then there are other aspects of, Okay, so while we might have um, an expectation around like uh, volume, um, we need to also shape some learners' progress and skill development towards that end goal. And so talking about um, learning about our expectations and learning about the skills to engage in some of those expectations is really, really important. Now, um, we can go down all different paths here into, um, you know, I'm interested in, 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 in whatever follow-up questions you've got, but there are times that we have to make a decision about like, okay, so what does this mean for the learning environment right now if the student's engaging in this particular type of behaviour? But when we're planning for um, and talking about meeting the sort of different skill level, and that's that, like when you, you're, you're talking about differentiation, that's what I'm hearing. It's like we're going to have students who are at different skill levels and able to engage in um, different levels of behavior, well, we support them as best we can, knowing what will help in the first place. So for some students, we, we might actually have different expectations around what, what seating looks like. There are some students that sit on cushions that, that allow them to move a little bit. There, there are some students that are um, able to move around um, in different spaces if that's actually gonna engage them whilst not distracting others and so on. And what we're trying to do is build skills towards and, and we're, we're shaping it. And, and so when I'm having conversations with learners, we, we can talk like a whole class group, for example, we can talk about how we're moving towards um, our class expectations all the time. And, and it's the same with any academic skill, like I said before, we're moving towards um, uh, certain academic skills and we're all starting from different places, but we're all moving towards this particular skill. And so, um, and, and again, it is a balance. I don't want to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Like it is a balance between we actually have to hold high expectations. So for me, it's it's moving learners along towards the next skill, having a clear idea of what that looks like. I feel like it's not very concrete. So an example might be students that have difficulty, like just they just call out all the time. They just call out all the time. And so we might be building tolerance for the student to wait. Like waiting is a skill and some students seem to come with a really, really well-developed skill. Now that might be a product of, you know, who they are as a person. They might be like, let's call them really chilled out or they might be just really like compliant or they might've had a really, really um, great um, foundation of um, teaching from a really young age at home or a kinder or whatever it might've been that's worked really well for them. And so some learners can just wait, they can just sit there with their hand up or they can just be waiting and others not so. And the cause of that, we kind of don't need necessarily to dive right into the cause, but we can actually work towards building their ability to wait. And 
that might in the first place look like us not expecting them to wait very long and reinforcing early skill use around like hand up. So the second we put the hand up, and I know that some learners can be frustrated. It's like, oh, we're calling on Russ again. He put his hand up for two seconds and now they're calling on him again. But it's also a recognition that we're not staying there. It's it's not going to stay that way. And we actually have to be clear with the learner themselves on our plan, get them to contribute. Like ideally, this is a plan that they're participating in themselves and aware of. And, and you know, we've got a um, a, a clear uh, set of actions that, that, that they understand. We're tracking it to see if it's working because if it's not working, then we need to do something else. But ultimately, everyone's going to be progressing towards our expectations. We're not diminishing the expectations. We might even note that we're not exactly thrilled with how quickly someone is calling out or the like whilst we are moving towards something else. It's not about creating shame or anything like that, but we just can still say, now remember, we're still wanting to see this. I love the way it's happening over here. I love the way it's happening over here. Thank you for waiting so patiently. So it's it's a little bit of um, understanding where we're going, being clear with the learners, in the, like all of the learners, that we're still holding high expectations and moving towards that whilst we're building skills and um, helping uh, someone who might need a little bit of additional support or we might need to think about what kinds of routines and structures and if there's ways that we can improve the routines and structures in the first instance to get a better outcome for specific learners um, as it stands. And so, like, this is a little bit more personal. It'll depend a little bit on the learner's needs. Um, and so it's kind of like a um, this advice is general. Please consider your, like, not a, not a, a PDS on, like, a, an insurance ad or anything like that. Um but it will depend on the learner's needs specifically as to like which bit of that you're going to need to spend more time on. But I think if you know a clear, if you have a clear idea of where the learner's at, you have some clear steps towards um, where you want them to be and you have a plan for teaching and reinforcing those skills, then you can talk to the rest of the group about, yeah, yeah, and here's where we're going to be. Like I'm, I'm not softening my expectations. I'm teaching and supporting so that they can actually reach the expectations that we hold for the classroom. Yeah, so, you know, like I'll, I'll admit that was probably one of the things that I found hardest as a classroom teacher was, yeah, um, you know, when you're trying to develop your your culture and those expectations within your group, and then you, as you're trying to develop it, you're, um, you've got different students that you're almost, you're not, you know, within yourself, you're not allowing it, but yeah. they're still kind of, they are breaking what you did say to other students that we shouldn't be doing. Um, but I did like yeah. how you, you know, recognize what everyone else is doing, you know, recognize yeah. how they're following your instructions and in, in um, what your expectations were. And then also just understanding that it's all part of the journey. Um, yeah. And, and from what I'm kind of gathering, it probably helps a lot as well is if you are kind of deliberately practicing, you know, different aspects rather than trying to target everything all at once. I think that I think that's absolutely right. And one of the challenges, like I, I mean, I appreciate your reflections, and I, I think that's right. And um, it's hard too. And I think back on my own practice, and there were days that I did this. Um, I was I was too soft. And other days where I was too, you know, like it's it's it is really easy to be too too cold and too hot. Like getting it in that middle zone where we're clear about what we want everyone to be doing that we are really recognizing the learners that are engaging in the stuff that's you know 
expected and and it's working for them um but, but it, yeah it, it is really really challenging like it, it i think um one way to yeah i think one way to think about it too is like that getting back to that core idea like you, you kind of nailed it not working on everything at once like what's that core skill and and it's it's super challenging when there's just so much to work on like if we're if we're feeling like we're compromising on our values and our expectations and and skill development across like five or six domains it can feel like we're not really making headway and and so i think having that kind of core like what's the what's the most important thing for me to be working on here and i mean i i, I tend to go straight back to like safety security that sort of stuff like we can't we're not we're not in a position to be like compromising on that kind of stuff um and then i mean teachers hold a duty of care and they hold a duty of care in a way that's not like you can't divide it you can't divide it amongst your um class it's not like you have less duty of care for one student over another it's like we we hold the equal duty of care to all the students you know um and so finding the the priorities within that um sort of the the, the behavior the the needs of the learner finding the priorities the core key stuff that we believe is foundational to their success and engagement and that will build their ability to engage with peers, I think is really, really important. And quite often it can look like um, like a social or behavioural skill, but in some cases it really is getting them to feel like they can participate in like meaningfully and progress in their learning. Um, yeah. I think like if, if there's one lesson I've learned from my you know time working in all of the different you know behavioral settings and, and instructional coaching um you know the privilege of being in classroom after classroom after classroom it's that the academic instruction is or ability to engage in the work under underlies so much behavior like just so much like it's kind of my working assumption that if i'm you know going in and seeing someone who's having difficulty um with behaving in the class that that like it's my working assumption that I'm going to look and see how they're going with their work. Like it's my it's my first point protocol, and we can read a file, and there might be a trauma history, there might be all sorts of, there might be you know all the different you know ADHDs. Uh, you know, I, I kind of like there can be every other one of those acronyms under the sun. Yeah, but a lot of that is brought to bear when we're asking them to do work. Like it, it's the it, that that kind of stuff is there. But it's the presence of the work and it's the presence of the actual demands that um, a lot of it is like brought into like sharp relief. And so we st it's that still it's still at that like friction point that that, you know, rubber meets the road moment. And so to work on um, ability to engage in, in tasks successfully and to see progress and feel like they're achieving, um, that's critical too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as I say, success breeds success. And, and if you're yep. feeling successful as a student academically, um, then of course you're going to be more inclined and motivated to, to do the right thing in the classroom. Yeah. Um, this next one is, is probably a bit of a, a bigger one and, and one I'm really interested to, to find out what you've got to say. Uh, is it just about, you know, what do we actually need to do to create sustained uh, school-wide, you know, positive behavioral interventions and supports or uh, you know, positive behavior for learning, whatever kind of framework you're following. Yeah. yeah. How do we actually get that to happen? Because I've been involved in, you know, quite a few schools now and, and almost every school I've been involved in has been in the process of trying to make it happen. But I'm yeah. involved in a school that is really strongly and, you know, 
they're able to sustain it. Everyone's yeah. in, in the, the starting phase, and it seems like they've been in that starting phase, you know, for quite yeah. So, um, yeah, really interested to, to find out what what sort of things you've um, you've been able to learn. Yeah, I I, I mean, it is it is the big question, isn't it? It's it's sustained whole school change, which is really really complicated. And it's complicated for good reasons, you know. Like teaching's hard, yeah. and a whole group of people that are doing a hard job of teaching um, and facing different challenges and different demands and having slightly different needs in their classroom. Um, saying we're going to do this across the school um, with all of them, um, it's, it's, it's challenging. And, and I, I understand that um, from a, like a, I remember when people were telling me we're going to do this across the school. And I was like, I'm not sure if that's going to be my needs as a teacher. <laughs> so I get it from that level as well. You know, the old staff room yeah. start of the year, you know, all the folders come out, you know, I hope you check the email, you know, Russ is coming in and Brandon's coming in. We're going to talk about positive behavior for, <laughs> we're going to be working on this for the next two to three years. It's like, really? Yeah. So I'm sympathetic, but I, the, teachers need the systems to be able to pursue it. Um, so I think like if I back it up a little bit too, like I like to think that behavior support is the bee's knees and I do. And I mean, that's where I've spent, you know, a lot of my time and energy, professional time and energy, you know, the, the, the nights up reading and writing and mucking around and doing all that kind of stuff um, after everyone's gone to bed or, you know, when everyone's out at the movies and I'm at home in my little room here. Um, but I actually think that when schools are implementing evidence-based instructional practices, it has such a strong impact on their ability to sustain and implement evidence-based behavior support practices. There's something about evidence-based instructional practices that um, really sets the tone for, I mean, firstly, building learners' capacity to succeed in school. Like, and I, like I'm talking about sort of explicit and direct uh, instructional approaches here. And we're not saying that it doesn't broaden out into um, project-based application. I'm not, you know, I don't want to get into some kind of like debate on pedagogy or anything like that. But there is something about when learners... Uh, are in a rich, like firing instructional environment that we see behavior come along for the ride in a really positive way. We, because they're essentially competing behaviors. You can't be engaged in your work and like thriving and engaging in problem behavior that's like well outside our values at the same time. Now there might be like some edge case exceptions where someone is like, doing really, really well while they're kicking their friend under the table. I don't know. But ultimately, rich, engaging learning environments um, are just like they've been shown to be really, really like positive behavioral environments. And then what we get over and above, we're, we're not having to address the learning environment in the first instance before we get to some other behavior supports. So in, in some ways, it's like just the, the, the foundation of that environment to then go about engaging in evidence-based behavior support is much stronger. Like it's a, it's been, you know, it's been leveled and, and and it's got all the reinforcing mesh through it. Like it's just a really good solid slab that you're then building your behavior supports on. Whereas if you build behavior supports first, um, and and I think you can build really really good behavioral supports across a school. And if we don't address some of the academic instruction stuff, we may rely on the behavior support stuff a lot more than if we had the academic stuff um, really, really fluent and embedded within our school community too. So that's kind of something I think is interesting to know. Like this is 
you know um something i've been having conversations with um some researchers and and, and practitioners of late and um it's a little bit like it's anecdotal it's um there's a bit of empirical <laughs> it's you know like there's a mix of reasons behind me kind of going on that tangent um but then when we're talking about behavior supports itself i think that it, it, we we rely on really good systems to support teachers like teachers need to know um what they're doing like clarity like this was the pd stuff around like making sure everyone's on the same page that we all understand what the values are that we all understand our role within the systems um that we're that we're working what is a classroom teacher to do like what does a classroom teacher write the behavior support plan or does the classroom teacher contribute to the writing of the behavior support plan um uh, what's the role of a graduate teacher like are we expecting graduate teachers to you know be filling out form after form after form like what kind like a graduate teachers to be um, teaching and handing out you know positive um, reinforcement um, tokens or our class of school-wide re reinforcement system staff are they to be entering in those data at the end of the week like are they to sit on teams and I, there's there can be good reasons for and against you know but it's just like clarity around does everyone know what their role is yeah. and are they resourced to achieve that role successfully I mean it, it comes, it's like, I view a lot of this stuff a bit like, it's a, like a bit like inception, you know, it's like dreams within dreams. If we're asking learners to do work they can't do, well, it's only a matter of time before they're disruptive or engaging in like, you know, difficult or, or, or problematic behaviors for themselves and for their peers and for the teacher. Um, if we're asking teachers to do something that they can't do, well, it's only a matter of time before they're not doing that. <laughs> and they'll go back, like teachers are creatures of habit. Like, I, I know I I could tell on my timetable what class I was in for. And, you know, my body had start getting ready for that class. Physiologically, I'm preparing for what's coming based on the history in that room. You know, I'm walking from this place to that place and I'm already thinking about what I'm going to be saying and what I'm going to be like. We are creatures of habit. We step into the classroom and we can have this idea of like, it'd be great to do tier one this. You know, I want to do the... Russ talks about three-step error correction. I'm going to do that tomorrow. And we step into our classroom and someone just runs across the room or like, you know, uh, moves a chair and bangs it into one of their peers. And it's like the habit, the habit kicks in. Like we are creatures of habit. And so I don't know, um, Sam Sims and some of his colleagues have written on habits in classrooms. And I think it's a really under, um, underrated, undervalued, under-researched area in, in, in schools as it relates to implementation. So we're creatures of habit. And so, you know, do we actually have the uh, the clarity of what we're working on? Uh, is, are we working on everything all at once? Are we building on things, um, you know, a practice at a time? What kind of PD? What kind of instructional coaching? So I, I think the supports are just really, really important. Are we asking people to do something they can't do and then they fall back on their habits? So it's just being really, really clear about that. The other thing that I think we often forget is adjusting practices based on their effectiveness or based on the context. So quite often we can go, well, positive behavior support or positive behavior um, for learning, it means this. And so we're going to do these things. And we might not adjust to our school environment. We might not adjust to the needs of our learners. There might be some things that we just need to beef up a little bit. We, we might need less of some of these practices and more of some of these other practices. Um, and I know that I'm talking in like some of, some of, which is not particularly clear, but if we're working in 
And so much of this is actually about the needs of the community, like actually understanding what our community values and needs. Um, like, for example, if we're thinking about implementing an evidence-based instructional practice, um, we would be looking at where our um, students are at with not just re like reading as like global reading, but like, okay, let's break that down further. Like, what are they like with like, Oral, re oral reading fluency like what are they like with comprehension like what are they like with things that the you know the word level the sentence like but so where are we actually implementing our evidence-based instructional practices and what does what does our community need are, are we going to need um to go really hard on some supplementary stuff or some intervention type stuff in the first instance to get us up to like are we all doing um like hardcore intervention in our community because we really need that so this comes back to like the data question like what are we looking at within our school community? Like, what are the things that we want to address with implementation? I think if we're really clear about what the needs are and we pick things that match those needs, we're much more likely to sustain, provided that we have the systems in support. Again, if we don't have the systems and structure, and so this is not me like doing some fancy long-winded way of saying, well, positive behavioural, um, interventions and supports or positive behaviour for learning, depending on which state you're in in Australia or if you're, you know, internationally, it might be PB4L in New Zealand. I know it's PBIS in, in the US. And I, I'm just saying, well, it's data, practices and systems, right? Like <laughs> people that are familiar with those overlapping circles. But ultimately, we actually need to be thinking about those data, practices and systems for our context. Like what does it mean for our school? What needs are we targeting? What systems do we need to create for our school? Are we all on the same page? Do we have the resourcing? Are we prepared to do the things we need to do? And then how are we going to know if it's working or not working? Because ultimately, if we're not sure if it's working or not working, then um, we probably won't keep investing in the effort. And I think it's just really important to recognise that we're asking teachers to do things that don't necessarily make an obvious change. Um, I'll give you an example, like, and this is kind of behaviorally science, behavior science nerdy. And I'll use my kids at home. So if my kids at home are like, I've got three boys and they'll go down in the playroom and they'll play this like weird rugby NFL basketball game in the playroom. And the oldest one's like almost 11 and the middle boy is eight and the youngest is like four. And he thinks he's 11, right? Like he thinks he's playing like, like the other two. Yeah. And they're just like smashing around, like just smashing around. And then it's just I, only a matter of time before Felix comes up crying, like Felix will be crying and away, and away we go. And then we're down there and you can hear it. You can hear it escalate. And if I'm just like, I hear the noise and I get in there and I raise my voice and I'm like, boys, 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 like, and I get that immediate drop in intensity, immediate drop in volume. They might then go and do something else if I stop the game. There's this really clear, really salient change in the environment that's really obvious. And that is reinforcing to us. Now, it's not that I walk away and go, oh, that worked really well. It's just something where it's like it, the problem goes away. And that's something that is so obvious to us that it's, it, it reinforces that behavior. I'm actually more likely to do that again in future. If I do a whole bunch of proactive and pre preventive stuff, if I'm like investing the time, I go down there and I play there with them, you know, I set up the room, I, I have a whole bunch of different activities. And so this was, this was this morning, right? Like I, I was in the playroom, you know, in, engaging with, with the boys and that, that was like two and a half hours. 
we were in there and it was just like not even a peep. But to me, all I could think of were the things I wasn't doing. Like I enjoyed it. It was fun and fine. But it was also hard work to do that too, even though that I didn't have to deal with any of the same stuff. And, and there wasn't the same salient change in the environment. The environment was just calm. So as humans, we're kind of looking for really salient changes in the environment one way or another. And this is just kind of like, well, it just is calm. And so there's a lot of stuff that we're asking people to do in positive behavioral interventions and supports that is prevention focused. So it's not going to lead to a big change in the environment. It's just going to be a calm and productive environment mm. and it's less reinforcing than the big change yeah. and so if it feels hard and it's not as obvious <laughs> you, you kind of need the counterfactual right like you need to run that same lesson twice with the same learners to feel it two different ways to be like actually no it was better when I was calm and then there are some learners that are just always hard work <laughs> it just is always it, it's hard work working with you know some some students need a lot of support. They need a lot of teaching. They need a lot of feedback. Mm. And, and it, it's not wrong. It's just, it can be hard. Yeah. And so doing a prevention-focused positive thing can still feel hard. And so it needs to pay off in ways that people are paying attention to. And this is where I think it's really important. I think this is something that's really underrated. And you and I have chatted a bit about this. We need to continue to tap into the things that teachers value. And, and this is not like some kind of, the teacher's needs are more important than the student's needs. It's just if teachers are going to be doing things that feel hard and that maybe don't make the most salient difference, they need to know why they're doing it. It's like, you know, when I'm trying to, I, tr I was hoping to get abs for Christmas, you know, like I was, you know, really wanting to get like a bit fitter. And when I'm, when I'm running and, you know, getting out and about and, and trying to get some exercise and my legs are hurting, it helps to remind myself why I'm doing what I'm doing. And we don't necessarily tap into the things that got teachers into teaching in the first place. Teachers care about their students. They care, they care deeply about their students. They really do. They care deeply about their subject. They care so much about um, building relationships and making a difference. And so how do we tap into those things? How do we continue to tap into those things? How do we show data on those things? How, how do we measure not just student outcomes, but you know, check in, like, how, how's it going? How does it feel? Like, is it helping you move towards being the teacher you hope to be? Like, what kind of teacher do you want to be? <laughs> like, it's not to be all like, again, psychologist couch or therapizing people, but it's just, we know that when we're tapping into values, it helps us to stick with hard things for a little bit longer. It can reduce burnout. It can help us to um, experience, um, you know, difficult situations in new ways. I mean, this is all empirically demonstrated stuff. I'd be happy if, you know, if people are really wanting, they can email me and or, or get in contact with you and I'd be happy to send some studies around this with, you know, all sorts of different parenting interventions and so on. But yeah, it's sustaining practice by, um, you know, thinking about and, and aligning it with teachers' values, I think is one way that we haven't really done it. But ultimately, if teachers feel like their school isn't doing it as a school, if it's not consistent and if we're not checking in on it, it's going to be really, really hard to sustain. We don't, this kind of stuff can be done one out, like a teacher can do it in their classroom in a school that's not implementing. It's just really, really hard, like carrying all the water yourself, like, and you know that your learners are going to leave your classroom and then the environment's going to ask different things of them and the expectations are different and all the ways of working are different. And so it just, it, it's putting a lot of pressure on. So this, I just keep coming back to meet the needs of the school, build systems, 
make sure that what you're doing is matching the needs of your community um, and, and, you know, picking practices that, that, that address those directly. And then can we make it really, really salient for teachers that what they're doing counts and matters and is helping them be the best professional that they can be? And then that's just it. We just problem solved, Brandon. We're just, it's just sustaining in schools everywhere. <laughs> so then the final thing is you have to keep monitoring all of that. Yes. Because <laughs> it's like, it's not, I know it's not, you click your fingers and that's all finished. It's like, you have to keep checking in on each one of those components. Yeah. So that's a really long answer to a short question, but it's a big question. <laughs> it is, you know, such a big question. And, and I think like one of yeah. the reasons why it seems to be such a challenging topic for schools to get on top of is because it seems to be a taboo topic as well yeah we don't we don't as as school leaders we don't really want to tell teachers how to behave and manage i don't know why but we we have this assumption that they already know how to do it yeah Um, like we've already touched on there are a lot of i guess um nuances involved with the differences in our understanding of what our expectations are um, yes. And if we haven't got that, you know, that shared language, um, the shared understanding and the connection to, uh, you know, what the, the community actually wants as well. You know, a lot of yeah. the times the, the teachers in the school, what we want is not on the same page as what the community wants. And so if you, if you haven't kind of had that sort of conversation, yeah. um, you're never really going to get there because at, at home, the kids are getting something which is totally different to what you're doing at school, you know, so yeah. Uh, you know, I like I like a lot of the things you're saying there about how, um, you know, we've we've just got to make sure that we are uh, connected as a community and and we've yeah. set up those systems and the structure and the support, uh, so that we are able to follow through with the monitoring. But um, you know, yeah. one thing I thought about is a tricky part of this, and and you know, you, you spoke about it when you were talking about how difficult it can be to collect data on it. Because, yeah, you know, one thing it's either inaccurate. Or uh, because it's really hard to measure, we're not yeah. able to see the, the outcomes that we want to see. And, you know, schools yeah. are performance-based. Uh, you know, so how, yeah. how do we then, you know, continue with those changes if we can't see uh, the improvement in data? Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, it's I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I've got a really good answer, to be honest. Like, because I, I think... I just agree with the question. Like, how can we? You know, like, yeah. and and part of this too is it's recognizing that when we say, you know what, we we need to have really good data on what's happening, like our implementation, our outcomes. Like, we need we need data on all this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't collect itself. Like, it's collected by teachers. It is, it is the behavior of teachers to, and and um, one thing that um, you know I've been talking about, and, and the way I think about this kind of stuff is it's it's almost three components. When we talk about data, we're talking about collecting, collating, and then making use of. They're like three discrete things. And we might do one or two of them really well, um, and we might miss one, and that might be enough. And that can be hard work to do it badly, right? Like it's, 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 it's work. And I think experimenting with ways to make it more efficient and making sure that we continue to target the things that matter. And I think when we're talking about classroom engagement, um, but at some point it all has to translate into learners progressing academically. Like it, if we're doing a whole bunch of extra work and it's like, and it's, we're not seeing gains in academics, then we might need to implement 
academic interventions, like that might be the, the most obvious thing to do if we're not doing some evidence-based instructional practices, like, yep, get on board, that's great. Um, but we should see uh, increased time in classrooms for teaching. We should see increased time for learners on task. We should see them um, able to engage in, in the academic stuff more. Um, and, and there might just be um, some really, really, like I think there's some pretty straightforward um, ways that we can do this. I quite like so like palm of the hand or um, stuff stuff on the whiteboard, like counting counting some stuff. Like if we're um, and and PBIS has some really really good structures around like well you know we do the big five. You know it's who and where and when and you know how you know rate per month uh, of certain types of behaviors and like like so there's like and I know that's not all five like but there are ways and things that we can measure and I guess it's then how do we drill down into making each of those things more practically achievable for teachers and making sure that we're not doing that in a way that is like tokenistic or just doing it like to tick a box and not actually leading to anything like collecting and collating without ever using it to make decisions about teacher supports around who needs coaching, who's who, which teachers are sending up flares without sending up a flare, like who's telling us they need help without telling us they need help. Then the collecting and collating is not leading to anything of, of any like real meaning, in which case it's only a matter of time. If we're engaging in behavior that's not leading to any payoff, it's only a matter of time before we just ditch it. <laughs> so it's making sure that what we're doing gets more efficient and targets like meaningful outcomes um, more and more. Um, and then it leads to payoff. Like it leads to payoff for the learners and leads to payoff for teachers. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just kind of start to think back about how, uh, like with our curriculum, we, we need to backwards map, you know, we need to, yeah. yeah. you know, what, what the ideal behavior is. You know, and yeah. that's up. we've had those conversations with the community and then backwards map as to, you know, how we're going to teach it, how we're going to monitor it, um, yeah. what time we're going to collect. And, and so if you're able to do that, yeah, I guess the only way that we can really create that sustainable change. Um, that yeah. And, and we'd say as behavior, behavior science folk, like we can, we can measure um, more behaviors than we would, it, like on first glance like as a teacher i didn't realize like all the different ways that we can understand behavior like quantify stuff that people are doing and there are heaps and heaps and heaps you know we can we, frequency it can be duration or latency or like you know and i can imagine severity like we, we on and on and on we go but yeah. it has to work and, and we just can't be asking teachers to do that while they're teaching i think like it's i mean occasionally if we've got like sticky note in the hand and we're wanting to count how many times a, a particular student's doing a certain thing like maybe like I said, you know, if we've got um, how many times we got to praise someone for something and we just keep a little count on the bottom of the board, like, sure. But it can't be too complex. And, and we can't expect it to be that accurate because the teachers are doing a million things. It's like, yeah. So I yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, I could, I, I could talk about this for a while, as you can probably tell. <laughs> well, I think you'll find this next section a bit challenging because I'm, okay. I'm going to fire out some, uh, some common topics or rules that can be a little bit controversial or there might be a few questions over it. And I want you to try to respond in one sentence. Uh, well, you've heard my response to the previous one. So this is going to be a challenge on multiple fronts, I think. <laughs> yeah. All right. So first one, open classrooms. Very challenging for students. Very, very challenging for teachers. Cool. I think, I think they create um, lots and lots of complications. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an opportunity at the end. If you want to uh, elaborate on any of these, you can. 
Second one is sitting in rows. I, I think it can be really effective. Um, I, I, I like flexible thinking around certain spaces for certain activities. But I think when we're talking about instruction, sitting in rows doesn't diminish a, a learner's ability to engage with their peers if needed. And it gives a, a lot of really, really positive um, opportunity for learners to all access stuff in a way that's clear um, and fair, good visibility, open access. I, I think I think it's a really nice way to do it. And it, there's some good stuff on um, positive impact on behavior too. Mm. Reward tokens. I think we'll need to talk about this later because there's nuance, but I'm external um, tokens, I'm all for. But when and how and the plan for them is everything. Okay. Interested to hear your, uh, your thoughts afterwards. Yeah. Next one is mobile phones in school. Uh, I think I have enough trouble with a mobile phone. I, have, I, I leave it elsewhere. You know, as someone who's a, beha a behavior scientist, person who's interested in behavioral approaches, I just leave it somewhere else. That's the easiest thing for me. And I think it's a good idea for schools too. Now, if schools want to go down the path, if it's their plan, then it comes down to how are you teaching, modeling, prompting, and reinforcing the use of mobile phones? I think that's bringing on a really complicated task but it may be one that some school leaders and practitioners think is worth it. Mm -hmm. Having school leaders deal with sanctions rather than the classroom teacher? Um, it depends. Okay, leave it at that. I think it's the shortest I've ever been. Brendan, how is that? <laughs> detentions. Um, if you know the limitations of detentions, they may be useful. Um, it, they can serve a purpose, but we need to be aware of how um, aversive consequences or, or sanctions actually function mm -hmm. and, and what they like. And, and this is maybe something for later on um, in order to ever use them effectively. And they're often overused and they're often used to punish people who are having troubles with their academic learning. Mm, good point. Okay, let's go over. Yep. Uh, reward tokens. Yeah. Okay. So um, as a nerdy behavioral type, yeah. this is where I'm like, wow, we would make a distinction between <laughs> rewards and reinforcement. So the, like, a reward is something that I decide is going to be beneficial or make a difference for a learner. So that's something that I choose for you with the intention of it improving or increasing some behavior. And that's different from reinforcement. So reinforcement is um, not about intention. It's all about outcome. And so I was trying to use a couple of concrete examples of reinforcement. And so one of the most common things I've seen in, in schools that I've gone to support or in classrooms I've been working in with the learners I've worked with uh, is students that are engaging in some form of, um, you know, rather complicated behavior to experience or manage or, 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 or be around um who then get kicked out of class and don't have to do the work that they've done now if the behavior continues or increases around 
that behavior, whatever it is that they're doing that gets them kicked out of class increases or continues, then it's being reinforced by them being kicked out of class. So the difference between rewards and reinforcement is that reinforcement is anything that makes a behavior occur more frequently. And so quite often people think of tokens as reinforcement, but they use them as reward. I'm giving this to you to increase this particular behavior. But then we don't actually watch the effect that a token has on behavior. And I think if you're a high school teacher and you've had conversations with people about, you know, reward tokens or reinforcement tokens, you're probably like, man, these high school kids, they're just not that interested in the token. And I would, that makes sense to me. But if we actually use the token as an opportunity to provide feedback, if we use it like a, a marker of feedback, like, hey, you might not actually be interested in the intrinsic value of this particular token. <laughs> it's, it's a token. And what it actually represents is this. And this is why I'm giving it to you. And it's actually more about our relationship. It's more, and like the kind of, I don't know, tweetable, catchy, piffy thing that I say about it is we're trying to turn a transaction in, in, into an interaction. So rather than a token being a transaction, rather than me giving it to you as a reward, you know, I've decided this is going to improve your behavior and you don't really care about it and it makes no difference on your behavior or maybe even makes it worse. I, I need to make sure that I'm through our interactions over time, build a really positive relationship. And when I do use a token, what impact does it make? So reinforcement is something that is... Um, you know, something that changes after a behavior occurs, it makes that behavior occur more frequently in the future. And quite often, the reinforcement is not what we think it is. And, you, and, and another example, another concrete example is if, you know, I'm in your year nine class and I'm doing really lovely writing, like really lovely. It's just beautiful penmanship. And you're wowed by how beautiful my handwriting is. And you say to me in front of my peers, Russ, that is the, the, the most lovely penmanship I've ever seen in a year nine class in front of my mates and you hand me a token, chances are I will not be, <laughs> I guess the social that came from that, the, the, like the social stuff, like my, I can imagine my mates next to me, they're like, oh, penmanship, oh, nice handwriting. Oh, what cute handwriting. Like you can imagine, right? And I know that high school teachers are like, well, you wouldn't do that. And it's like, yeah, because you would punish the behavior you want to increase by using the token thinking you're rewarding it. And so it's always being aware of how the, like, what we're up against in terms of reinforcement and the peers are really potent in high school and they are in top end of primary school. And how do we then use our relationship? And, and this is not to manipulate. This is just to be really aware of like what is meaningful here to this particular learner and how am I going to use the system? But when we're talking about making things um, or using uh, rewards or like not rewards, using reinforcement, when we're beginning some behavior that is, like difficult to get started, then you'll need some more external stuff. And over time, our job is to fade away external supports once someone's got fluency and along the way be showing and connecting the external stuff to how they feel inside. It's back to that gradual release model again. So if I'm using reinforcement, I might need to use a whole pile of reinforcement. I might need to go really hard early and get them up and running and get them flowing. But then it really needs to be about connecting them to the successful experiences they're having. And that's when we end up with that intrinsic motivation. It's a switch from extrinsic to intrinsic, but to expect learners to just make that jump when we're talking about things that they've maybe found difficult for three, four, five years, we might need to use some external stuff in the first place just to get it going. 
So that's a bit of my nuance around the, the tokens. And so tokens might be used um, more in the first part of the year to get routines going, and then we might fade them away. Um, I had the pleasure of being in James Dobson's class. He's a teacher here in country Victoria, um, prominent on Twitter. Um, man, what a class. And I, 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 I checked out his class. He works with um, Kindergarten Kids Foundation Prep Reception, depending on where you are in, in, in Australia or around the world. Um, and I, was, I had the pleasure of being in his class at the um, towards the beginning of the year and then towards the end of the year. And he had recognition for learners that were doing specific things that he was hoping um, to see happen and was connecting it to how well they were going and how it worked for their peers and for them. And then towards the end of the year, he um, was just able to do, like he, he did it like just so much less. Like it was just, it just, it wasn't the same frequency or, in, or intensity or duration. But then you might increase it if you need to do a little boost, um, if you see its skill dropping off. So it's about fading it away, but not just taking it away. It's explicitly teaching the connections to the intrinsic. Um, and that's when we can fade it and the learner can run on their own. Yeah, you know, uh, such an important point there where you brought up about that interaction happening. Because I think it's it's probably a bit of a misconception about the tokens when you know teachers hear the part about yeah give them frequently frequently at the start and you know smash them out and uh, you know all yeah. these goods and, and do it as much as possible. But yeah, kids they don't actually understand why they're getting it. You know. And yeah. So yeah. That's why it's not effective in, in what they're doing. Is there something you've done in your work where you, like? Because I sort of wonder, as he's saying that, it's like, ah, yeah, it's almost like, here's a token, you know, like, teach what the token means at the beginning. <laughs> like, not just like, we have these tokens and we give them for the values, but like, the token represents, it is a token because it's a token. Like, here's the definition of token. It is that. <laughs> have you tried something like, like, I'm interested in your reflections of like using them. Have you, have you sort of trialed different things and had better success or? Yeah, you know, like, I guess, uh, just from my own observations and, and the way I've kind of noticed the way that students react when they're given yeah. them is that they're basically after them because they want to win the prize, you know? So they just want to get that lollipop that's picked out at the end of the week or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. They're not actually developing that intrinsic motivation like you spoke about yeah. because teachers yeah. are giving them out as a, a, a token, but the, the students yeah. aren't actually I'm sure or aware of why they're getting them. Um, yeah. You know, so I, yeah, I've definitely tried to be more meaningful with when I have yeah. given the start, or yeah. um, you know, and even just worked out well which students they don't really care about the token, and it's just more of yeah, that, you know, the the verbal communication or the verbal right, or, yeah, yeah, up or you know, yeah. the little head nod that you, you give to those um you know, yeah the, the boys or whatever it is, but yeah, you know, sometimes it's just working out what their currency is, isn't it? And and hundred percent. Oh, hammering that in when you're seeing them do the right thing yeah and i think you're right about um like getting to know like and, and we might use the token still but there might be a whole bunch of other stuff that's wrapped up in our use of a particular token or, or whatever i think too like one thing I, I i didn't talk about um is needing to personalize delivery like I, i'm all for particularly for the older learners like it's that really quite like side of the group stuff like I mean, there might be some things that we might do publicly, but, um, and again, the same thing fits for error correction. I think we can often win um, uh, a much greater buy-in 
or, or earn greater buy-in and participation if we do some of that stuff, you know, not as a public thing. Um, and and there are times that when we've done it publicly or I've done it publicly, I've actually started new trouble for myself by bringing it up in front of a group. Um, and that's both delivering good stuff and you doing error correction. So, you know, it, the, the challenge is like finding the time, picking the time in the class, like you can be busy. Um, and, and so I, I like to use a lot of, hey, mate, I'm going to pop back around. I want to chat to you about X. Um, and I buy myself a little bit of time, which is not a bad thing if I'm a bit hot under the collar. <laughs> I can I can walk it off a minute and um, go and go and praise someone for doing the right thing while I'm doing it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, look, as we begin to wind up things for the first episode of the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, I'd like to finish by asking you about what other things do you think more teachers need to know about? You know, whether it's to do with your focus area of behaviour or more broadly in education. Are there any particular misconceptions that you've come across frequently or pieces of knowledge that you think are essential for enabling effective teaching and learning? Oh, what a great question. Not the first either, hey? Like, <laughs> I think um, the one thing that surprised me when I got into this more behavioural sciences stuff is, this, is considering what makes up a task. Um, like one of the things that they, that they get uh, trainees to think about, and this is a particular skill called task analysis. So if people want to go and learn about task analysis, it's basically like breaking a task down to its smallest teachable components. And there are things that were considered that as a, as a, a teacher, I wasn't really thinking about, um, like sitting and attending. Um, and, and if you get, it's kind of like, if you can imagine writing a list of all the things you need to do to ride a bike, um, there are skills that they would need to practice before they could ride a bike. And this is why balance bikes are so great, you know, because you deal with the balance and the steering. So you add in. So it's like this really nice example of task analysis where someone's going, oh, hang on a second, we can do this. It's not training wheels, actually, because that's tr that's training a whole different skill. We're going to train the balance skill as a foundational skill. And so when it comes to um, looking at why behavior might be occurring within a certain environment, thinking about what, is what is a task is made up of can be really really interesting and then to think about well where might that break down for the learner and and this is where it's like holding a pan you know feet on the floor like holding up their core you know i mean it, like some of these things are um maybe impacting on someone's ability to engage um and so there might be work and this is where teachers engage with other professionals and work together and i think um it, it can be hard for teachers, you know, you have a million different people. Like I, I used to come in and do my instructional thing and teach like, who's this guy? And why is he in my room telling me about blah, blah, blah. So that working and getting good information to help build the skills that make the whole thing possible for a learner. I think that's one really, really important thing. But yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head before when you, you were really talking about academics and behavior. I mean, I can't understate the importance of effective instruction. Like, like, for teachers to you know, understand how to really teach learners how to read, like to understand like how to engage in um, instruction that involves like really great examples and examples that considers cognitive load that, you know, uses really high rates of opportunities to respond. And for me, the biggest misconception is that that stuff is drill and that it kills creativity. Um, and I think too, another really big misconception is that the use of things like tokens is manipulative and crushes extrinsic uh, intrinsic motivation just you know relying on extrinsic it's like no all of this stuff can work to create really independent you know really intrinsically motivated learners it's just how well are we doing it <laughs> i think so much of what we're talking about 
is about teachers thinking about their environment and creating the effective environment for the learner. We, we can't go blaming students all the time for things that are happening in our classrooms. And it's not blaming the teacher, you know, you could have engaged them a lot. It's more about the learner is engaging in behavior in this environment. What about this environment can we make more effective? And let's see if that makes a difference for the learner. And it'll at least give us an idea of where their skill levels are at and where we can begin um, teaching. I've got one last one. I know I've taught heaps. Um, I think we often conflate engagement with enjoyment when we're talking about lessons. And we ask teachers to be engaging. But I think sometimes what we are kind of saying is we want students to be entertained all the time. And I don't think that's right either. I think some of the most engaging things might be you know, it's not necessarily making everything passion-based. It's not necessarily making everything real world. It's about making it um, a place where they can find success and see their progress because sometimes doing things that on the surface might look kind of boring and may have like limited, obvious, real-world appeal um, actually can be really, really engaging provided we're able to be engaged and succeed. So I think focusing on engagement um, is like so much about getting students to a place where they can where they can learn and they're fluent and that's about effective instruction and it's not necessarily about creating an enjoyable lesson it's about creating an effective lesson and one where learners can see that it's making a difference um, and that they're progressing in it so yeah I I don't know I think you know coming back to that idea of like the environment it's not teacher blaming I think we often put it on the teacher to make it you know more engaging and what we're actually asking them to do is a song and a dance when in actual fact if we can focus on um that true sense of engagement like it might be doing something that seems boring and difficult but will be like deeply satisfying because they're able to succeed that's more about what i've sort of been picking up along the way awesome you know i've, I've learned so much today uh, uh, you know to do with behavior but also just to do with how it all links up you know everything to do with, yeah. with education whether it's academic whether it's um you know effective behavior management the same processes, uh, we still want to be you know, playing out the same processes. So whether that's sequencing concepts in small steps for, uh, you know, mathematics and, and uh, you know, how we might look at problem-solving tasks uh, or whether we are looking at all of the steps involved with actually breaking down different behaviour tasks, you know, and, and what that might look like for a student and what they actually have to do um, step by step, you know, it's just so important and, and really um, refreshing to hear someone like you talk about, you know, things like cognitive load theory and, and how, you know, you're across explicit direct instruction, even though, you know, you, you would be categorized as someone who is a um, behavior analysis. It just kind of shows how everything links up and it's important that we do have that, that understanding and the knowledge uh, to be effective teachers. And you can't just kind of pigeonhole yourself in one aspect of it because otherwise you're not going to be effective. So, you know, really, uh, really want to thank you for giving up your time to have a chat with me. And I hope that, uh, you know, any teachers or educators listening to this podcast are able to get something out of it, particularly at this, this time of the year where we're about to go into uh, a new school year, you know, and everyone's looking for that fresh start and, and we want to, we want to start positively. Uh, yeah. I think you've given so many great tips for teachers to look out for. So, you know, thank you again. Oh, no, it's really kind. Thanks, Brandon. And just really excited to see um, what you build with the podcast and uh, hear future guests. And it's just such a, a, a thrill and, and always enjoy a chat with you. So thank you so much. Thanks, mate. 
Wow, what an insightful conversation that was. Russ is someone who I could speak to for hours, and every time I speak to him, I come away with different points. I hope you got as much out of this as I did. My key takeaways from this conversation were, it's not so much about changing the learner, but addressing the environment. We need to use a safe sense of humour. Reflect on our expectations by asking the question, does it make their world better? We actually build relationships by using evidence-informed practice. Teaching strategies that work for academic behaviour also work for teaching positive social behaviour. Use the error-correct three-stepped process. The first one is identify and correct, then provide a practice opportunity, and finally reinforce after the response. Support students in building habits by using gradual release of responsibility and using environmental cues and fade away the prompts. Meet the needs of the community. We need to turn token transactions into interactions. And we often conflate engagement with enjoyment. Please let me know what you thought of this podcast by getting in touch with me on social media or leaving a review. Make sure you subscribe to my podcast because I've got some really interesting guests coming up. I'll be speaking to structured reading specialists, implementation scientists, mathematics experts, and teachers, school, and system level leaders. Until next time, goodbye.